So I'll apologize in advance for not being able to get to all your questions. Uh, someone is kindly compiling and kind of grouping similar questions together. Um, but while they finish doing that, I'll answer one question that I just got. So the question was, and please, what was your name? Mark, Mark correct me if I, if I rephrase this question wrong. Um, he was asking, so if really some of these chances are that fine and that, that fine-tuning are that remote, that we're one, one in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 120, but there are that many number of universes exist and we're one of those universes and you know, it's not necessarily luck, we just happen to be that one universe out of the billion, 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 trillion. So you know, we, just, we just happen to be the ones and life existed here. You know. So we can have a lot of these what-if questions. I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of speculation that we can do. But again, in terms of science, and these are interesting thought experiments, but ultimately, ultimately, that is not something that scientifically, scientifically can be determined, either proved or disproved, scientifically. We can't, because again, we're dealing with a realm that's outside no, the known limits of science. And ultimately, I mean, my question is, so what? So what? Even if there is, why would that limit or hinder my belief in God? I'm still here. There's still so much else that points to the wonder and the magnitude of God. Again, you know, there's, we, can, we can do what ifs, you know, from now till forever, but, there, but the only ones that we can validly explore are the ones that we can test. One of the other, one of the other questions that I saw um, I, when I was glancing at that long list was, okay, so what's, what's the opinion of life outside of Earth? You know, if, if God did create this incredibly massive, you know, universe, then would it be selfish for us to say, hey, we're the only life that's here? So a couple things I'll say to address that. First, to, to, give, yourself, to give you a, an idea of really how huge our universe is. I'll give you a simple, simple fact. You go out to the beach. You take a scoop, a largest scoop of sand that you can, that you can possibly fit in your hand. Imagine counting the individual grains of sand that are in your hand, that number. Okay, imagine that, how big that number is. Now drop that scoop of sand on the beach and think about how many individual grains of sand there are on that entire beach. Now let me give you the fact. Okay, we're dealing with numbers that just hurt, hurt the brain at this point. There are, more, there are more stars in our cosmos, in our universe, than there are grains of sand on every beach of our entire planet. That's mind-boggling. I mean, just trying to think of that. And that's, that's, that's just, that, that's science. I mean, you can, you can, that's calculatable, you know, at least in orders of magnitude. So if really we're this tiny remote nothing in the corner of, you know, you know some remote corner of this vast universe, could there be life elsewhere? Why would God create all this? Why is all this? First of all, as I've alluded to earlier, science has, is already showing us that even with this immensity, even with this immensity, still the laws of probability for life and all the conditions to be exactly how they are, are still very, very remote. But despite that, despite all of that, there have been 
some, some you know, very romantic thoughts, which are okay, that, hey, you know what, God is so big, this is the smallest thing he could have, <laughs> he could have created. He couldn't create anything smaller than that. You know, it seems big to us, but for God it's nothing. But other than that, I mean, think about it. Think about the science that's necessary to produce all the heavy elements and the abundance of heavy elements in our body. Maybe this is just the mechanism, this vastness, this mechanism is what was required in order to produce this. Maybe you need something that size. I mean, again, every single atom, a carbon is, is only six on the periodic table. You've got much, much heavier heavier atoms. The heavier, the heavier they are, the larger, the more massive the star. You, you can go onto YouTube and see, you know, what are, what, what are the respective uh, relative scales of planets and stars in the solar system? And, and you see them going, they take, you know, planet Earth, and they show you that you can take three planet Earths and stick, that, stick them into the great red spot on the planet Jupiter, which is a big hurricane on the face of Jupiter. I mean, that's how big Jupiter is. Then you take Jupiter, all the other planets in our solar system and rocks and every, all the stuff in our solar system, the sun and the planets and the rocks and everything, squish it all together and the sun makes up 99.9% .9 of that mass. I mean, that's how big the sun is. And yet the sun is a relatively small star. You know, and, and as, they, as they expand out and the sun shrinks and shrinks and shrinks, suddenly you see this, the, the, what looks like a straight line, but as they zoom further and further out, you see that it has a curve and all of a sudden this massive sphere and that's the representation of the largest stars in the solar system, in the universe. I mean, these things have incredible gravity. They have to be very far from us. Again, so, so um, you're going to have to help me to come back to the original question because this is, this is why I stuck to my notes because I, I just go off and off and off. So again, back to, back to the life, life, elsewhere, uh, life elsewhere in the universe. Um, the, the response of science and the response of our faith is, is very similar in that science has not proved yet that life exists anywhere else, intelligent life exists anywhere else, or any other form of life. They're looking for it. There's signs you know, on the other planets, on the moon, uh, Mars, uh, so some of the uh, moons of uh, Saturn, like Titan. Um, maybe signs of uh, conditions that could have supported some type of simple bacterial life. Um, but the, fa the fact, the simple fact is that that we know from scripture is that God created us, that we, uh, oh, um, science has not discovered, as I said, life anywhere else, so science can't prove or disprove because we haven't looked everywhere. There's too many places to look. Science has, so science can't say either way, there is life or there isn't life. It can make a lot of you know, educated guesses. And same thing kind of with our faith. What God has revealed to us is us. You know, could God have created some other being somewhere else? Maybe, maybe not. But really, what does that have to do with anything in terms of my salvation, my relationship with God? You know, here I am, a being among how many that are alive today, among how many that were alive and will be alive in all of history. And yet, in God's eyes, you know, I'm as big as anyone else. It, it almost comes down to kind of so what? Does it really matter? You know? Okay, some of those questions. So that was the most popular one that you answered. And then could you please share your thoughts on the Higgs God particle? So there are lots of... Um, all, of all of the study into quantum physics, they're trying to identify... Ultimately, what they're trying to reach is a unifying theory of everything. I mean, that's what Einstein was chasing when he passed away. It's basically a law and a theory that basically governs everything. A fundamental, you know, electricity and magnetism have been united, you know, in, in equations. And 
Um, so when we go into quantum physics, trying to, trying to um, marry the quantum, the laws of quantum physics and the, law, the laws of the, 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 the large universe, um, could there be you know, further particles that define and, and, and you know, identify how atoms work and how quantum, I mean, if, if, that, is, if that is discovered you know, in particle physics, it would only, only really show more of the incredible amazingness of God. I mean, we've talked about the, you know, how amazing the cell is and I'm, that would only reveal more, more wonder and more magnitude and more, more, more beauty you know, in, in how the universe works and you go into further, further and further. But, but again, you know, whenever we, uh, the Higgs particle is actually something that uh, kind of is on the border between theoretical physics and, and actual, you know, detectable, you know, concrete physics. Uh, but once you start going way off, you know, uh, that's, that's where you, you know, the, uh, we're trying to find the God particle, you know, the thing that actually seeded everything. Again, you have to, you have to start thinking. And I, I touched on this when I was talking about those, you know, that, that quantum fluctuations that is currently defined by science as, you know, what caused the universe to burst into existence. You know, unfortunately, the reason why Big Bang has such a bad connotation in terms of the religious community nowadays is because what has happened since, and I, I kind of explained in my presentation how the, the Big Bang theory came about, the, the prevailing theory of science before then was that, hey, the universe is infinite, doesn't begin, doesn't end. And how did science come up with that understanding that the universe was infinite? Well, they basically used the tools, the primitive, in, terms, in, in relation to this day, the primitive tools they had available to them, whether they were records of things etched onto cave walls, you know, uh, thousands of years ago, compare them to drawings of the, uh, compare those drawings to what we see in the sky nowadays, doesn't look like there's much difference. You use what's available to you to draw a conclusion. That's just a scientific method, you know? And then the fact that this idea that the universe is actually came into existence at a certain point and came from nothingness, that's the fundamental Big Bang. Nothing, then something, which by the way, and this is, this is part of the interesting thing of science, and which is why science has a hard time with this stuff. Big Bang, in its, in its you know, original form, violates probably the most basic tenet of science, uh, of science, and that is cause and effect. For every effect, there has to be a cause separated by some amount of time, whether that time is many years, thousands, billions of years, or whether it's micro, nanoseconds. You know, there has to be cause and effect. Well, Big Bang was an effect that can't really have a cause because time didn't exist prior to the Big Bang, you know, as, as it's understood. But again, since, since Big Bang was finally fully accepted because of some of that evidence, there have been many theories that have, been tr that have tried to explain, well, how did that Big Bang ignite? What was the cause of that Big Bang? And those theories have been latched on to the original Big Bang theory, and it's all presented as Big Bang nowadays, but it's not. It's these other theories that explain Big Bang, and it's kind of all packaged together. But ultimately, all that Big Bang says is there was nothing, and now there is something. I don't even know if I answered the question. Keep going. <laughs> Sorry, this one is a related one. Uh, what, what do you think of young Earth creationism? Is it an example of faith overstepping its boundaries? And um, can you explain where, if at all, the Orthodox Church's understanding of evolution conflicts with current scientific understanding? The Orthodox Church does not have a stand on evolution. It doesn't. It's science. You know, why? 
Why, why would the church, again, what the church has issue with, what the faith has issue with, is where there is a philosophical interpretation of the scientific data. There is science that provides evidence for a model of a, the evolutionary model. There's plenty of, plenty of you know, lines of, of evidence you know, for it. Um, but at the same time, and I was, I was mentioning this to someone uh, earlier, the reason why evolutionary theory is the prominent theory today is because it's the theory that we currently have for how life came about. It's the current scientific understanding. There is no competing theory. And until a competing theory comes along, it's what we've got. So we just use what we have. Even though, and by the way, there are many, I'll, I'll show a quick video right now. There's a document that is out there in the scientific community that is uh, a declaration that is called A Scientific Descent from Darwinian Evolution. That's the title of this declaration. And in order for you to sign your name on this declaration, you have to have very, very high credentials. You have to be a PhD at one of the most you know, uh, notable universities in the world. You, ha you, you can't just be anyone to sign this. This document has thousands of names on it, signed by PhDs in every single field, by Nobel laureates. Why? Because the scientific community, the scientific community itself acknowledges that, look, we use evolution and it's good to use it because it's what we have. We don't have other models available to us, so we'll use it as much as we can. But let's not limit ourselves because even though there's a lot of evidence for it, there's a bunch of holes. And as we said earlier, that's not God. God is not those holes because those holes can be filled, may or may not be filled. But there, there are problems with it. The problems are kind of avoided by the scientific community because there are these religious implications. They just vehemently want to avoid, kind of like Fred Hoyle. He was, so, he, was, he was so against this Big Bang idea because he had a bias against faith. He said, oh, all those guys, they're just biased by their belief in Genesis. So he wouldn't even, he, he, he wouldn't even look at it. Right? Let me, let me show that real quick. Hopefully it'll play. I'm skeptical of the claim. We are skeptical of claims for the ability of random mutations and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. Skeptical. 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 Skeptical of claims for the ability for the ability of random mutations and natural selection to account for the complexity. Complexity. The complexity. The complexity. To account for the complexity of life. Careful examination. 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 Of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. So again, this this group of scientists, when when they're making this claim. There's no, there's no re religious motivation for what they're saying. What they're saying is science is artificially limited, limiting itself into this evolutionary framework 
because of a knee-jerk reaction to religious implications. You know, don't limit yourself. There's enough to, 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 to question about evolutionary theory that let's look elsewhere within the scientific domain. Uh, young Earth, in terms of violating, you know, the, the, the realms of faith, Absolutely. I mean, nowhere, nowhere in the Bible. Sure, look, you can, you can use the Bible to kind of calculate the number of generations and this and that, but the first, the first six days of Genesis, we've heard this argument all the time, they're called days, and the sun doesn't show up till, you know, halfway into that process. So what's a day, you know? Even though I've seen science using, you know, the expansion of the universe and, and, and the speed of light as that changes in the, in the, early, the, the early phases of that Big Bang the laws of science aren't the laws of science that we have nowadays. They're completely different. That goes into, a, an, into an incredibly complex realm of quantum physics, you know, and, and relativity and, and, and general relativity and whatnot, how time behaves when you have matter acting a certain way. But I've even seen some data coming from, again, very incredible, world-renowned, highly acclaimed scientist, Ger uh, Gerald Schroeder um, from MIT is one of those who actually takes the model of the Big Bang, and he shows that you can actually do some math to show that a t what a 24-hour period is today, in today's um, uh, frame of reference, when you take that frame of reference and move it to a much more dense and compact universe, that frame of reference expands kind of the way that light behaves differently, or time, beha sorry, time behaves differently the faster you move towards the speed of light. Um, you can actually show that the equivalent of a 24-hour period, but again, that's kind of stretching it a bit. You can do some fancy math and show some of this stuff, but ultimately, you know, the description of Genesis as, you know, six days, you know, that word day is more like an eon, a period of time. Where, why is it necessary from the biblical perspective, again, from the, from the purpose of the Bible, that these would be 24-hour periods? It doesn't say that anywhere. It doesn't need to say that anywhere, right? It... it, it violates the purpose of the Bible to even have that detail in there. It's not, it's not necessary. Can you please explain resonance reaction of carbon again? Is it how much energy it can absorb while staying stable? Is it proportional to atomic mass or not? No, it's, it's not atomic mass. Um, and again, I'm not a, I'm not a uh, biochemist or chemistry wasn't my uh, strong suit. But what I do understand about it, and actually you can read some incredible papers that, des that describe Hoyle's uh, discovery, but basically what it is, and, and, I, and again, I'm going to simplify this, and this might just be a re reiteration of what I said earlier um, without any further detail, but uh, maybe some of you guys can look further into it. Um, the, as I said, when, when helium particles, alpha particles, which are basically helium but just the nucleus, right? That's the, helium, that's the alpha particle. Come together to form the heavier elements. And by the way, the way this works, within a star, within any star, let me say this in a very simple way. The gravity at the center of that star is so intense that you can have atoms which should repel each other. I mean, we know how, that's how electricity, that's how you know, atoms work. The electrons surrounding the two atoms should repel each other. Negative and negative should repel. The only way to get these things to squeeze together, fusion, which is the opposite of fission, the reason we have nuclear bombs, the splitting of atoms, the reason so much energy is released. That's the amount of energy that was needed to actually cause the, the, this, this nucleus to fuse this way. That's what happens in the core of stars. These lighter, lighter uh, elements, the, the force repelling them together gets overcome by the gravitational force and they are squeezed together to form the heavier elements. 
you exhaust, for example, in, a, in, in one type of star, it might, the fuel might be all uh, hydrogen. And that, that star is basically taking all of its hydrogen, converting it to helium, taking, the, taking that hydrogen, combine, bring, bring two hydrogen together to, com, to, to uh, create helium. After all the, after the billions of years or hundreds of the, uh, millions of years and all that hydrogen is exhausted, the star may not be large enough to have a gravity strong enough to then take helium and merge it together to make the next heavier element. And if that happens, that's when you have a supernova, the death of a star. You need a larger star for that to happen, and so forth. So, carbon. carbon. So, in order for carbon, in order for, again, for carbon to, to, to um, form, you need three heliums to come together to get the, the, the atomic number of six. It's very unlikely for that to happen with the standard understanding of carbon because beryllium has that high instability. Beryllium by itself doesn't last, in, in its alpha form, does not last long enough for that third particle to come and stick. There has to be some, some, some feature, some property that allows that to happen. And that's what was unknown to science, that resonant energy, an energy where, where it, it resonates and it, and, it, and it lasts, it stays, it doesn't deteriorate long enough for that third particle to come along and actually join. So again, I'm not, I'm not a, you know, uh, I'm not, I don't have a, a profound, you know, knowledge of, of, of chemistry and, and molecular chemistry and things like that, but uh, that is it in a, nut, in a nutshell. For me, sometimes, you know, when I, when, I, when I read and I see some of this stuff, and I'm really trying to understand it, I'm really trying to grasp the science behind it, and I take a step back and I say, well, wait a minute, first, before I try to grasp it, let me first appreciate, because my mind will start doubting. I'll start saying, well, come on, well, maybe it's just there, you know, and it needs to be there, and that's how it is, and, and, but then I, I say, well, wait a minute, this guy Nate Hoyle, he knows a lot more about this stuff than I do. And he's much more of a smarter scientist than I. If someone like him could be blown away by how this shouldn't be and yet is, then some of my you know, very feeble ideas of maybe it just can exist that way are, are kind of fly out the window. That's why we depend more and more. You know, I remember in school, um, undergrad years, I, there, was a, there was a station on TV um, that would air... Uh, academic debates in all the different sciences, you know, all kinds of academic debates. And, and I would, you know, nerd that I was and am, I would sit there and watch some of these. Um, and I re would remember some of these, you know, especially when it came to evolution and cosmology and stuff like this, I'd hear this one guy come up and he'd be explaining all this stuff. And the way they're presenting it is so definitive. And I'd be sitting there like, oh my gosh, they, f they actually definitively figured out Either evolution is, you know, science, or, or it, it's, it's almost definitely it, or that, you know, Big Bang, or whatever it is. And I'd be just blown away. And then you'd have the next scientist come up and say, but wait a minute. You, f you failed to mention this, and you're, you interpreted your data this way, and you're someone that is at their same level that makes you, oh, okay, okay, maybe it's... So, so much of this stuff is so subjective, and you have to be at, the lev at that level to really understand, which is why it's so impressive that these scientists, the higher, the higher they are in their field of study, the more expertise they have, the more likely they are to be theists, not the other way around. Right? I mean, that, that tells me enough. I can, I can you know, try and struggle you know, till, till I'm blue in the face to understand some of these really hard, com complex you know, theories. And okay, that's great. But ultimately, that's, that, that should be the really impressive thing.
Uh, where do you stand on climate change and global warming? Is there anything we as individuals can do? And then um, can we assume that since the effects of man on the environment disrupt the natural design and chemistry of the planet, that we would cause the apocalypse? So, first, first of all, we were commanded First, we were commanded to be stewards of this great creation that God, that God placed. So, in terms of doing what we can to care, to be good and wise stewards of the world that God created for us, this good world, this good planet Earth, you know, one of the, one of the most incredible, incredible and impactful things that happened for the very first time that mankind was able to send a camera out beyond the limits of planet Earth was the picture that it returned of this beautiful blue sphere in the middle of a black void without any, without any borders, without any... And, and I'm sure some of you guys have heard uh, organizations like Doctors Without Borders and there's many other... You know, that actual... That, that, that whole set of organizations, you'll notice they started kind of in the... 50s, 60s time frame, it was shortly after that first image came about. It was space exploration that brought about that whole without borders idea. Because we are one, and God has created this beautiful, precious thing for us, and he placed us as stewards. All of this is for us. That's clear in Genesis. So we should be good stewards. But at the same time, God gave us all of this for us to use. For us to use for our, for our benefit. So we just have to be we have to be wise and we have to be sensitive to just being completely flagrantly you know, abusive of God's creation. I mean, ultimately, if we saw all of this as God's creation, we would be much more... Sen- and, and we really... This is, this is why the, the apostle says our goal, we have to try to attain the mind of God. I mean, imagine... You know, th- this Sunday, tomorrow, the gospel, the gospel reading is, is about loving our enemies... Christ, there on the cross, in agony, bleeding, looks down at those who have inflicted this pain, this incredible pain upon him. And the human pain is enough. The divine pain of carrying the the sins of the entire world compounded that pain. For him to look upon them and see, these are my creation. Still, I love them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. That mind of God, being able to see and perceive the world through the mind of God. That someone who is my enemy, someone that is attacking me, someone that is hurting me, even if intentionally, the way God sees them is someone who has been beaten brutally and broken and bloodied by Satan, attacked. Imagine, imagine if there's someone that you love you know, that has this really bad habit of being, you know, absent-minded and leaving their doors open and not locking their doors. And you tell them, look, you don't live in a, in a, in a really good area. You need to be much more vigilant about this. You've got to close your doors. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. And you've gotten angry and really upset with them when you see them so just absent-mindedly doing this, doing this over and over, you know, being so lackadaisical about it. And then you walk in one day and you see them near death, broken and bloodied on the floor. Would you be angry? Or would you first immediately, despite if they brought this upon themselves, You would want to help them. You would be hurt. You would agonize for them. Same thing, God sees us as people who are broken and and, and bruised and attacked. If we were to see the world through the eyes of God, through the mind of God, right? And not only people, but the rest of God's creation, the rest of God's beautiful creation. 
You know that God has... So yes, we are to be stewards. In terms of us being, bringing calamity upon the world, again, this world is there, is here for us. Some of the disasters and, and, the, and, the, and the brokenness in the world is a result of our fallenness, of our sinfulness, of which every single one of us contributes to. I mean, the church fathers speak about... It wasn't the, it wasn't the rest of creation's fault that Adam and Eve sinned. Why would, why would, why would that, that brokenness that infiltrated humanity when we sinned and we disobeyed God and we introduced death. And by the way, death as spoken of in Genesis isn't necessarily physical death. You know, there's a deeper meaning to that death. But why is it that, we, that that then spilled over into the rest of creation and then things just weren't perfect? The goodness that God created. There are, there are a couple of things that I've read in the, in, among the fathers. One is that, again, God in his... In his in his divine you know, plan, created everything and placed us as kings and stewards of this creation, right? And just like any, any, uh, any country or any entity, any kingdom, where the king becomes corrupt, you will find very quickly that that corruption will slowly bleed into his subjects and then bleed, and, and the entire kingdom will have that corruption flows from the top down. So it almost happened naturally as in that hierarchy. Another, another uh, thought of the fathers that I've read is that, well, you know what? God in his grace, again, he created this hierarchy. He put us ab- above you know, this creation. And when we sinned and took on that imperfection, we suddenly put ourselves below. And God in his grace to keep the order of things then brought creation under us. So there's many of these ideas, but ultimately, ultimately we are, we are to care and to try to acknowledge that the only people born, that the, the only human being that can really say, or human beings too, that would not be able to say that verse that we say in our prayers, in sin did my mother bear me, were Adam and Eve. When we say that line, it's not because we all are guilty of the sins of our predecessors. It simply means that we are all born into a world that already bears the damaging effects of sin. And we have to deal with that. We have to acknowledge that. And God, that's one of the reasons why God is so merciful with us. We're not born into perfection. Right? So that imperfection that we see all over the world, every time I sin, I contribute to that cumulative sinfulness of humanity. And I need to feel that. The reason why these incredible saints that go into the desert, they weep for their own sins and the sins of humanity is because they know that even, even despite their holiness, they feel that their sin is contributing to the sin of the world and it is causing more and more of this evil infiltrating God's creation. This is the perspective we, we need to have. We need to elevate to this more sensitive spiritual understanding of our world and then not be extremists, not be, you know, and, and just acknowledge, okay, we do have a responsibility, but at the same time, the world is not perfect. The world has issues, and we do what we can without being extreme and, 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 and hindering the, the you know, reasonable life that God has, God has allowed for us you know, in our care for the world. We have one minute. We're going to try to squeeze the two questions. Two? Oh, geez. 30 seconds each? <laughs> uh, why does God not want to reveal a part of this mystery through science? Why does he intentionally make them separate and um, it's, it's, it's not intentional, it's just the nature of things. Like, like I said, 
God is infinite and we are finite. You know, there's only so much that we as finite beings um, ontologically can grasp. You know, and uh, our cumulative his, uh, human existence is growing and advancing in knowledge more and more and more. It's kind of the same, it's kind of a similar question as to why did Christ come in the exact point in history when he did? Why not come earlier? Why not come later? You know? You, you, look, at, you look at Old Testament and New Testament and you, and you kind of see a lot of people, oh, these are completely different gods. You have this vengeful, wrathful God that's all kinds of rules and punishment and this and that. And then you have in the New Testament a God that's all about love and this and that. These are different gods. And you have this claim all the time. You know, but humanity as a whole, humanity as a whole, since that, since that initial separation from God needed to, to mature and grow to a point where it was ready. Just like baby, a human being. A human being, when, when a baby is born and lives through the period of infancy and toddlership and adolescence, ch- all of childhood, the relationship with your parents, it's very, it's very author- author- an authoritative relationship that the parents have. There are all these rules, there are all these restrictions, there's discipline, there's punishment, right? As you mature, and get to the point in your life where you need to make your own decisions, where you need to live as your own person, you know, and you leave your, fa- your mother and father's house, then that, rela- that relationship doesn't go away. It stays, but it gradually morphs into a different kind of relationship, right? They still advise you, they're still, but it looks quite different. Your relationship with your parent as, as an adult versus your, relation- your loving relationship with your parent as, adult, as an adult versus your loving relationship with your parent as a child. You know, we see very much the same in, in human history. So it's not that God is somehow, is, is somehow holding back. You know, it's God is re- re- revealed. But, and we have to realize that our, spir- our eyes, our eyes are spiritual eyes. And in order to see spiritual things, we have to be spiritual minded. We are creatures of exposure and bias. Every single thing, every single thing you see and expose yourself to in this world will bias your mind, like it or not. Every exposure, right? And unfortunately, there are some things that we can't help but be exposed to. And there are other things, many things, that we expose ourselves to. Which is why in the church, you find kind of that where, you know, people say, oh, it's too much. You've got all these long liturgies, and then we got to do, do these kinds of prayers and do this kind of fasting and do this, and then, you know, all the... What is it? We're trying to balance out that exposure a little bit. Balance it out so that you've got an even playing field, so that when something comes at you, you can, actually, you can actually look at it with an even mind, a mind that isn't too biased towards the secular, the non-religious, the strictly worldly, you know, so that you can see it all. So, um, the second one, if any. You can post any of this material in the notes for us. Any recommendations for sure. our Sure, sure. My, my number one, my number one uh, piece of advice um, to anyone, and, and you know that the church fathers say a lot about this, is just reading, especially about your faith and the things that inspire you. You know, you allow, as St. Paul says, these things that God has made, everything that is in front of you, to inspire you to seek more and more about God. And God speaks to us through these things. When we seek him, then we will find him. Knock and you will, and, and you will find. Seek and read. You know, we're, we're at a very fortunate time where we have so much that is accessible to us, so much that is online, so much... And we, we're, we can think, we can challenge, we can, we, can, we can think, well, why? But always remember that we can do this within a safe, a safe arena. 
right? Where some of our limited questioning shouldn't cause us to then have the knee-jerk reaction, well, I just figured this out, okay, I'm out of here, right? Um, I, I was reading an article about a guy that said uh, that he, uh, he was talking to his, uh, uh, the, the dinosaurs are nowhere in the Bible, I'm out of here, you know? Anyway, but yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. Please pray for me.